0: pediatric cardiology today my name is dr robert pass and i'm the host of this podcast i'm professor of pediatrics at the icon school of medicine at mount sinai thank you for joining me for this 282nd episode of the podcast i hope everybody enjoyed last week's episode on the topic of hypoplastic left heart syndrome and looking for problems in patients who've had a norwood palliation We spoke with Dr. Mina Nathan of Boston Children's Hospital, and for those of you with an interest in hypoplastic left heart syndrome and the Norwood procedure, I'd certainly recommend you take a listen to last week's episode, 281. As I say most weeks, if you'd like to get in touch with me, my email is easy to remember. It's pdheart at gmail.com. This week, we move on to the world of adult congenital heart disease. The title of the work we'll be reviewing is Long-Term Outcome After Surgical ASD Closure at Young Age, Longitudinal Follow-Up Up Up to 50 Years After Surgery. The first author of this work is Robert Cowling, and the senior author is Jolien Roos Hesselink. And this work comes to us from the Department of Cardiology at Erasmus Medical Center in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. When we're done reviewing this paper, Dr. Robert Calling, all the way from the Netherlands, has kindly agreed to speak with us about it. Therefore, let's get straight on to this article and then a conversation with its first author. The work begins with some general comments about atrial septal defects, reminding us that the birth prevalence is 1.6 per 1,000 and how they comprise 5 to 10 percent of all congenital heart disease. They review that ASDs can result in right ventricular volume overload and even pulmonary hypertension, as well as atrial arrhythmias, and paradoxical emboli, and how the first surgical closure of an ASD was performed in 1952. They review the fact that we already know that in general ASD surgical patients do well, but that there's relatively high prevalence of arrhythmia seen in follow-up for ASD, with some literature suggesting that the prevalence of arrhythmia is smaller if it's repaired earlier. The purpose of this week's work was to look at very long follow-up of surgically repaired ASD patients, assessing mortality, morbidity, cardiac function, and quality of life up to 50 years following surgery for ASD closure, and the authors explained that they have been reporting on a series of patients who were repaired in the Netherlands between 1968 and 1980 at an age less than 15 years. And they explain that they have previously reported on this cohort in 1990, 2001, and 2011. In many ways, as I read this, it reminded me of the wonderful British series entitled Up, which was spearheaded by the documentary director Michael Apted that's followed 14 children in their lives in England since 1964, checking in with them roughly every 10 years. The authors explained that alive patients who were in the original cohort at this hospital and who agreed to participate had a full medical history, 12-lead electrocardiogram, CPET, 24-hour Holter, transthoracic echo, cardiac MRI, lab measurements, and a 36-item short-form health survey. The authors matched the survival data to those who were 7.5 years of age at the time of inclusion period and who did not have congenital heart disease and they explained what they consider to be major cardiac events in this study, as well as heart failure. And on to the results! The authors explained the study group, which started with 135 patients, and the mean age at repair of ASD was 7.5 years, with 105 having a secundum ASD, and the remaining 30 sinus venosus defects. Survival status was discoverable in 128 of the original 135, or 95%. Ninety-three patients were approached to be in this latest iteration of this study, and of these, 86% or 80 patients agreed to participate. The current mean age was 52 years, with a range of 41 to 63, and a median follow-up was 45 years from surgery, with a range of 40 to 51 years. And the authors explain that there were no significant differences in the baseline characteristics of those who participated in this study and those who did not. So first, let's discuss Survival. In general, it's excellent, with cumulative survival after ASD surgery being 100%, 98%, 94%, and 86%, 10, 20, 30, 40, and 50 years following atrial septal defect surgery, respectively. Importantly, survival at 50 years was not statistically different compared to the general Dutch population, and there's a nice curve demonstrating that in Figure 1 for those of you who are reading this work. Cumulative event free survival after forty five and fifty years was fifty nine percent and forty six percent, respectively, with three interventions seen in six patients, with three of these being intervention to reclose an ASD that had been surgically closed before. Importantly, the most common problem in these patients was perhaps not surprisingly arrhythmia which was present in 25 patients with atrial flutter being the most common, though AFib was seen in some, and 10 patients had a catheter ablation. The cumulative burden of symptomatic arrhythmia at 45 and 50 years post-op was 25% at 45 years and 35% at 50 years. Thus, as a rule of thumb, we can, based on this paper, state that in the 50 years following ASD repair that is uncomplicated, the overall risk of an arrhythmia which is usually an atrial arrhythmia, is about one in three. Two patients developed endocarditis, but both had pacemakers, and three patients had symptomatic heart failure. Finally, eight patients had an ischemic stroke, but in one there was a residual ASD. Importantly, there were no factors that were associated with any of these adverse events. And so now on to the individual things that were studied. First up, EKGs and halters. 89% were in sinus rhythm or an atrial rhythm and the authors state that in the final decade, meaning between 40 and 50 years post-op, 13% developed prolongation in the QRS duration to over 120 milliseconds. Holter monitors showed some form of SVT in 69%, with the majority being very minor short atrial tachycardia runs. However, AFib was seen in 2, or 4%, and non-sustained VT defined as 3-10 to complexes were seen in 7%, or 4 patients but there was no sustained VT in any patient. Second up, how did they do with the stress test? Well, it turns out generally well. 77% of patients had a normal maximum exercise capacity or VO2 max, with 20% having a diminished VO2 max, and there were no significant differences between those with a sinus venosus defect or a secundum ASD. Interestingly, those who did have a reduced VO2 max also had a lower EF on CMR. What about the echocardiograms of these patients? It turns out that there was right atrial and right ventricular dilation in 23% and 45% respectively, and qualitatively, there was at least mild RV dysfunction in 56% of patients. The LVEF was abnormal in 11%. And what about the CMRs that were performed? Well, not unlike the echoes, 15% had an RV end-diastolic dilation and 23% end-systolic dilation. The mean RVEF was 52%, and only 6% had depressed RVEF on CMR. Interestingly, there was left ventricular end-diastolic and systolic dilation in 21-25%, to and the mean LV ejection fraction was normal at 58%, with 10% having a depressed LV-EF. A residual ASD was seen in 2%, and all of the volume and functional measurements were similar between sinus venosus ASDs and secundum patients. Finally, in regards to the survey, it seems that those with sinus venosus ASDs had significantly higher scores on the physical functioning domain compared to those who had a secundum ASD. In their discussion, the authors stated, and I quote, In this prospective longitudinal study, we describe the long-term outcome of a cohort of patients following surgical closure of a hemodynamically important ASD at young age. With a follow-up period of up to 50 years after surgery, and examinations repeated every 10 years, this study offers a unique opportunity to describe clinical outcome and changes over time. The authors review the overall survival of 86%, and explain how this is comparable with the general Dutch population, and how any deaths in the past decade in this cohort were not believed to actually be cardiac in nature. They remind that this is the longest follow-up of ASD surgical cases in the literature, and how it is similar to data from a previous work that showed follow-up up up to 32 years. They mention the low rates of severe complications and low re-intervention rates, with three patients needing reclosure. They mention also how postoperative bradycardia is very common in these patients, affecting half of the ASD patients, with 10 actually needing pacemakers, four of whom had them early on after ASD closure. They explain that this high prevalence of bradycardia is in itself an adequate rationale to follow these patients indefinitely. The authors speak a bit about the 69% of patients who had SVT of some sort with Holter monitoring and how AFib was seen thus far in only 4% but how overall up to 35% had some sort of arrhythmia, and how much higher this is than the general population, where the expectation at that middle age would be closer to 1%. They speak of how all arrhythmias became more prevalent the longer from surgery the patient was, and how 17% had L.A. dilation, and how L.A. dilation and older age are independent risk factors for AFib in patients who have ASD. They mention that being aggressive with other causes of AFib, like having a hemoglobin A1c that's elevated or other modifiable risk factors, is probably especially important for this patient group, given the already higher-than-average risk for problems of this nature. They re-emphasize, again, the absence of pulmonary hypertension in this group. They also speak about the presence of RA and RV dilation, which was seen in 45% and 23% respectively and how right-sided dimensions seem to be increasing with the decades in these patients. They explain that some other studies have not shown this, but these were children who were repaired earlier, and also that the follow-up was not nearly as long in those other studies. And they wonder if the dilation seen in this cohort may be somehow related to altered anatomy from childhood prior to ASD closure they re emphasize that generally sinus venosus ASD patients and secundum ASD patients seem to have similar CMR and exercise outcomes. In mentioning limitations, the authors speak of the small sample size and the fact that some of them were lost to follow-up. They'll mention how the follow-up in this study is extraordinary, and the patients who were lost to follow-up all had similar baseline characteristics to those in whom they do have follow-up. And so they conclude long-term outcome after surgical ASD repair during childhood is favorable, with good survival, low re-intervention rates, good exercise capacity, and good quality of life. Nevertheless, there is a high burden of symptomatic arrhythmia, and need for pacemaker implantation is frequent, which warrants follow-up. Well, I thought this work was of great interest, as it is rare that we have a paper demonstrating outcomes for congenital heart disease at 50 years following a surgical intervention. And I'm sure most listening are pleased to hear that the general outcomes in this ASD cohort are excellent. It's of interest to see the number of arrhythmias seen, but I think that anyone who reads Zios or Barty's or Holter monitors in this patient population is perhaps not at all surprised to see sinus slowing and a fair bit of atrial arrhythmia. It's funny, but when I'm given a stack of these to read, I always take the ACHD patients and put them on the back of the pile, as I know there will virtually always be more to report because of exactly what's described in this work. That said, most of the SVTs seen here are not too bad, at least at 50 years out, and though sinus node dysfunction does seem quite common, the need for pacemaker was not universal. That said, it's clear that this patient group needs continued follow-up, and the presence of a lot of RA and RV dilation over time, both on CMR and echo in this repaired group of patients, is noteworthy and of interest. I think at this point it makes sense for us to move on to our conversation with the work's first author. Joining us now to discuss this week's work is Dr. Robert Martine Calling, who is an academic cardiologist at Erasmus University in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Dr. Calling is a well-published author in many areas of adult congenital heart disease, and he's an expert in this field. It is indeed an honor and a pleasure to have him join us all the way from the Netherlands to speak with us about this week's work— Welcome Dr. Calling to the podcast. I'm here now with Dr. Martin Calling. Dr. Calling, thank you very much for joining us this week on the podcast.
1: Yeah, thank you Dr. Boss uh, for letting me be here today. I'm very happy with it. Thank you. We're really happy to have
0: you. Always exciting to have an international guest here. So, thank you. You know, I was wondering as an adult congenital heart specialist, your study really found a lot of different things, many, many findings over this 50-year follow-up. I'm wondering if you could share with the audience which of the findings you yourself, as an active adult congenital specialist, found most interesting or maybe even surprising.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, to us, the publication of this first paper was very exciting because it's the first of this decade's round of investigating five different groups of patients. So many are here to follow regarding the long term follow-up. So, in this paper we reported on patients after, after surgical AV closure during childhood and our main and most important observation is that we saw that overall the expectations for these patients are quite good. So, the survival is excellent and is comparable to the survival of the Dutch population and they also uh, experience good and stable exercise capacity which was normal in 77% of all patients. And um, this good prognosis is also reflected in their self-reported quality of life, which is comparable and, uh, to the Dutch population and also stable over time. And I think another very important observation to me as an adult congenital cardiologist is that we didn't find the development of late pulmonary hypertension in this cohort. And of course, that's very reassuring to our patients. Yes. But on the other hand, not everything is that good. We did also observe um, that there was a uh, high amount of morbidity during this long-term follow-up, which is mostly driven by symptomatic arrhythmia. I really believe that this supports that we still have to follow these patients um, during long-term follow-up, even if they have a simple congenital heart defect.
0: Yes. Certainly uh, reading the paper, I was sh- I was not surprised, but it was certainly sobering to see that almost basically a third of your patients had some kind of arrhythmia in follow-up. Although you don't have the opportunity yet to hear what I described about the paper, because we're just doing our interview, but I made the observation that when I read Holter monitors and Zio and Barty devices, it always is surprising to me how much arrhythmia even simple congenital patients have. I, I mentioned that I sometimes put those device recordings on the bottom of the pile because I know they're going to be longer reports to prepare because virtually nobody has a completely negative one. I'm wondering, mm-hmm. Dr. Calling, if you could speak to us a bit about the genesis of this work. Very interesting. It seems like it's a very long-term study that was started a very long time ago. Is this a funded project? Um, I was wondering if you you and your colleagues are anticipating to continue to follow these patients indefinitely and I can't even imagine, but wonder, what, what were the challenges of getting patients to participate
1: 50 years after surgery? Yeah, this is indeed a study that, that exists for many decades in my institution. And it actually goes back more than 45 years ago. And in those days, my predecessors, they decided to initiate a database with all patients who were operated in the first 12 years that we performed uh, congenital cardiac surgery in my center. So all the patients who were operated between 1968 and 1980 were included. Among these, um, uh, for instance, ASD patients, but also patients with a VSD, pulmonary of stenosis, or for follow after muscle repair, were the most common diagnosis. So we decided to uh, perform a first follow-up, especially in these patients in 1990, and then the quality of life project, as we call it, was born. And after this initial follow-up study, we did the same in 2001, 2011, and now in 2021. And this really allows us to do a nice longitudinal follow-up in these patients. And all these patients were invited for in-hospital evaluation, including this extensive cardiac, but also psychological evaluation. And, yeah, of course, as you already mentioned, it's, it's quite a lot of work, all these investigations, it's quite costly, actually. So we were happy to find, again, funding for this project. But it is, like always, it's always a challenge to do so.
2: Yeah.
1: At this point, as, as far as we know, it's the longest follow-up study available. So, of course, we'll be very happy to continue this project in the future, although we're still very busy with an analysis. So we haven't discussed this in much detail. And the the long-livedity of this study is is also, of course, a challenge because patients migrate or just simply lost the follow-up. But the the lucky part of it is that, as the doctors, most of our patients, well, they really love this study. So they're very happy to cooperate as long as we can reach out to them. And as we saw in in, in this uh, ASD paper, that we managed to include 86% of the legible survivors. So we're very happy with that result.
0: Yeah, that's quite remarkable. Uh, Dr. Colling, are you going to be, do you you guys follow the VSDs and the other
1: surgeries as well? So you have cohorts of all these different lesions, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Currently, now we're analyzing the the FALO cohort, and we we try to uh, publish this paper as soon as possible. Yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah. Wow. More to come. Yeah. So awesome. more exciting work to come. Impressive. One of the things, Doctor Calling, that I noticed was that sinus node dysfunction was very common in this patient group, and I think that that is not surprising to anybody who reads halter monitors on adult congenital patients. I was wondering if you knew if this issue was seen more commonly in the sinus venosis defect patients versus the secundum patients, and wondered if you might be able to offer for us your thoughts on why sinus node dysfunction is so common in this patient group, despite the fact that they had what we think of as a very simple, straightforward
1: operation. Yeah, this is indeed an, an important observation. In this cohort, 26% of our patients showed a uh, short episode of sinus node dysfunction during their 24 hour ultra monitoring. Um, however, we, we did see that there was not a significant increase in the past decades in these patients. And if we look in more detail to the distribution in this round, we, in, we saw indeed that sinus node disease was more common in patients with sinus venosis type ASD. However, in the previous cloud, it was a little bit more equally distributed. So, and we know from literature that the sinus node disease is associated with older aged surgical correction and also the shunt size. However, in in our cohort, we couldn't reproduce aged surgery to be very different between these groups, although the patients with sinus node disease did have a larger shunt fraction. So we still think this is very important in the genesis of of the development of sinus sinus node dysfunction. And of course, in in many patients, it was not clinically that relevant, but we did observe in the 134 patients during the entire follow-up, 10 patients underwent a pacemaker implantation. And in most of them, in 8 out of 10, sinus node dysfunction was the indication to implant this pacemaker. So still, we think that of course this is a very important observation that really underlines the importance of the long term follow up in these patients but on the other hand of course we're very interested what will happen in the cohorts which was operated with more modern techniques of course in future yeah. because we don't realize that this is an old cohort Yeah, yeah.
0: Although I think maybe ASD surgery is one of the few that have been relatively similar in its approach uh, versus, say, tetralogy, where the repair is done very differently today. Uh, Well, for those of you in the audience, Dr. Colling is right in the middle of his day in uh, the Netherlands. Uh, We're pretty early in the morning here in New York, so I'm going to finish up with my last question. I found it interesting that about 20% of the patients in your study on imaging had RA or RV dilation, um, despite the fact that their repairs were good and they no longer had ASDs, um, and it seemed as if they were enlarging over time, and wondered if you had any thoughts on why this may be, and do you believe that with time that this may actually prove clinically worrisome for this patient group, and should we be worried at late follow-up in these patients like we do perhaps with tetralogy patients?
1: Yeah, we, we did observe on MRI that, that around 20% of all patients showed RV dilation, although, fortunately, RV function was normal in more than 90% of all patients. And, yeah, indeed, we also had a couple of discussion about this finding because we didn't have a clear explanation to it. And, again, if you look in literature, there are conflicting results described regarding the dilation during long-term follow-up. And, of course, it could be postulated that it's related to the shunt size or age of operation, but we couldn't demonstrate this clearly in our cohort. Okay. So, another explanation might be the development of right-sided valve disease in these patients, which is progressive over time, but I must say we didn't analyze that in much detail, and neither it was that it was more than a moderate insufficiency or recalcitation in most of the patients. And, of course, it, it might also be just a result of this altered anatomy during childhood The progressive dilatation as a late result because of, of, uh, of processes we don't under, uh, underestimate yet. So, if we compare it, for instance, to the follow-up patients, we, we saw, on the other hand, that the right-sided volumes were lower, uh, and also, in a lesser extent, there was severe valve dysfunction in the ASD cohort, and finally, the right ventricular systolic function was good, as was the exercise capacity. So we do think it's, it's an important clinical observation, although the, the implications and how worrisome it is, it's a little bit difficult, and I hope it's less compared to, for instance, patients with a toctology of follow.
0: Yeah, you know, as we're talking, okay. I'm wondering if maybe your work is... is uh, I wonder if it matters how early we actually repair. In other words, the average age in your patients were seven and a half. Today, we would typically recommend ASD closure somewhere between two and four years of age. So I wonder if that is an issue. And I also wondered whether transcatheter ASD closure patients 50 years from now are going to have similar findings. I guess all very interesting topics uh, for the future. But well, Dr. Colling, thank you very much for joining us this week. I want to congratulate you and all of your co-investigators. Really extraordinary to have 50 years of follow-up of any congenital heart intervention. Really remarkable. You all should be congratulated and thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. I think you'll all agree that this is an exciting work this week, and it's still amazing to me that Dr. Colling's group has a cohort with 50 years of follow-up. It seems clear that arrhythmia remains the most serious and ubiquitous issue that will probably vex all congenital heart disease patients following surgery, and how interesting that the group still sees differences on their CMRs in regards to atrial and ventricular size, despite complete and good repair though I think you all will agree that it is reassuring to see how generally well all of these patients are. It's also interesting that the team is also following other congenital heart disease lesions that have been repaired, and I'm very excited to see those reports as they become available. I'd like once more to thank Dr. Calling for taking time out of his very busy schedule to speak with us this week. To conclude this 282nd episode of PD Heart Pediatric Cardiology today, we hear the wonderful Latvian mezzo-soprano Elina and the American-Chilean tenor, Jonathan Tatelman, sing the beautiful duet from Federico Moreno Toroba's Roba's entitled Luisa Fernanda. And the title of this love duet is Subir, Subir, y Luego Caer. Thank you for joining me for this 282nd episode, and thanks once again to our guest. I hope all have a good week ahead.
3: return